Speaking of God's word, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation chapter 22, and we'll read verses 1 through 5 today. Um, We looked last week at this city that has come down from God. We looked at the the building materials and some of the symbolism of that. And one of the things that we looked at in that is that there will not be a temple in that end times new city. If you read some of the the passages in the Old Testament prophets about the end time city of God, that New Jerusalem, most of the Old Testament prophets speak of a temple being in that city. And so there is a question as to whether or not John is contradicting or or maybe thinking of a different end time city as he considers his vision. I think it's important for us to remember what that temple, especially the prophetic end times temple represents. Both the tabernacle and the temple was given to Israel as a, as a picture of God's heavenly throne room, which we'll talk briefly about today. Um, but it was also given to them as a reminder that God dwells with his people. Uh, after the temple was established and built in Jerusalem, as the people would go back and forth to Jerusalem for those annual feasts, for those annual festivals, As they would come through the valleys, they would look up on the mountain and they would see the temple seated high upon the mountain on that highest point in Jerusalem. And they would then know that their help, their strength, their sustenance comes from the Lord who has made heaven and earth, as we are told in Psalm 121. And just as John uses imagery that would have been familiar to his audience The prophets, as they had revealed to them the glorious uh, future of that new heavens, new earth, city of God, how would they best describe to their people that God would be present with his people in those new heavens and the new earth? It would be to have a temple in that city. And so since Jesus has come, he has destroyed the earthly temple because he is building a temple, his church, we have John giving us the picture of this city without a temple in it because God is present directly with his people through the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we consider this, as we consider this in light of the Old Testament prophecies that come, John is not contradicting them, but as as revelation, the word of God has progressed and we have better understanding after Christ has come, we see that we don't need a physical temple. Because wherever God dwells, wherever God resides is his temple. And so as we think about that, that does play into what we talk about today. Let us look at Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Let us pray. To the great and mighty God, your word is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. 
Show us the way to be obedient to you and faithful to the truth that you have called us to proclaim. Bring the sin-darkened areas of our lives into the light through this sermon and lead us to repentance and joy that is found in the hope that you give. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. When we began the book of Revelation, we talked of an introduction that John has to the book of Revelation. That's the first eight or nine verses of chapter one. And then a series of seven visions followed by a conclusion. Today, we will wrap up the last of those seven visions. And while next week we will consider one final mistake that John makes, even in the midst of all this, we'll consider the call that is given to John and to us. And then also John's final prayer of the book. Um, Our passage here today does pick up the picture of the new heavens, new earth city that we have been introduced to uh, since the beginning of chapter 21. We, as we wrap up this passage today, we will see that this city is also a temple, is also a garden, and um, is immense. In fact, it covers the whole of creation. We looked at the symbolism of the cubic city that's 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles last week. But in Isaiah 54, 2 and 3, as Isaiah talks of the New Jerusalem, He does tell us that this end times New Jerusalem will cover the entirety of the earth. And this points us to the truth that creation will end as God intended it to end. When God created everything in Genesis chapter one, at the end of 21, he created humanity. He called us the image of God. He made us co-rulers with him in this creation. And he placed Adam and Eve in a garden. The Garden of Eden and the picture there is that the Garden of Eden existed within the boundaries of a world that was not completely encased within that garden. And as humanity was called to fill and to subdue and to have dominion over the earth, that call was to extend the boundaries of that garden to cover the whole of the earth so that God's throne could dwell in all of creation. We have a tendency to look and say, well, you know, sin happened and then God had to adjust his plans. And that is not the case, even though sin entered the world. And from a human perspective, it looked like God's call to extend the boundaries of garden of the garden to encompass the whole earth. That was part of God's sovereign plan as well. He gets more glory through providing salvation Through Christ, he gets more glory by bringing about this end times, new heavens and new earth. And at the end of that new heavens and new earth, we will find all of creation remade in such a way that God and redeemed humanity will dwell together face to face forever. And our tendency when we look at these promises is to think of this eternal life, this eternal intimate fellowship to be something that we that we will experience in the future. But John in his gospel repeatedly gives us these the picture that this is something that we experience today as well. And John 3:16 says for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. 
And as he goes throughout the rest of that gospel, talking about the abundant life, talking about eternal life, it is something that is ours today for those who believe. As we look at the rivers of the waters of life and the healing that they bring to the nations through the tree of life, it is important for us to remember that those realities are real for you and I today. As we look at the light of Jesus shining upon you in joy and knowledge and beauty and in love, it's important for you and I to remember that those things are true for us today. And as we consider the completed Garden of Eden in our passage today, we will look at the city and we will see that first it is a garden and secondly, it is illuminated. And we are given these descriptions so that we can be motivated to live in those realities today as we pursue faithfulness and obedience. First, this is a garden city. Now notice I said garden city, not garden state. We're not going to New Jersey in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a city that is a garden. As the vision of the city began with John on a mountain surveying the entire city, He then begins to move toward the city, toward the gates, and even through the gates. And as we come to Revelation 22, 1 through 5, John finds himself having moved through the gates to the center of the city. And as he moves through the center of the city, the city transforms into a garden. And this is something that we have been taught to expect in the building of the temple and the tabernacle, both in the wilderness and in Jerusalem. We're told in Hebrews that the temple, the tabernacle were mere shadows, mere representations of God's true throne room, of that city whose foundations are in God. And if we look at some of the decorations of the temple and the tabernacle, we'll see that garden was the expectation. The lampstands that lit the inner sanctuary of both the tabernacle and the temple were carved in the shape of trees, flowering trees, fruit trees that had fruit and and bore fruit. As those lampstands moved from the tabernacle to the temple, both Solomon's temple and Herod's temple, we see the walls in that inner sanctuary carved with pictures and sculptures of trees and flowers as as God's presence dwelt within a garden. God's city temple has always been a garden-like city temple. Now, at the fall of humanity in in Genesis chapter 3, we we see the beginning of a separation between garden and city. We almost get the picture as we read through chapters 4 through 5 that the faithful children of Abraham lived in garden settings while the city and urban life was developed by the sinful descendants of Cain. Even today, oftentimes, we are tempted to separate technological and urban advances as that's where those are the seat, those cities are the seat of sin and depravity, while God is most glorified in a garden. Had society advanced in its original state, had Adam and Eve never fallen, had they subdued the earth and filled it and expanded the boundaries of the garden, city and garden would have grown together. We would see a glorified city. We would see a glorified garden as Eden had grown without sin. 
But as we said, that did not happen. God gets glory through sin entering the earth and salvation coming through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have that picture of this city garden for us in Revelation 22, although it focuses mainly on the garden aspects of it. And it reminds us of Eden in four ways. First, we have the river of the waters of life. We're told that these flow from the throne of God. And we know if we were to look back at Genesis chapter 2, that Eden was the source of at least four rivers that brought life to the garden and would have brought life to the whole of creation had the garden been expanded. Here in this passage, the river finds its source in the throne of God. And water is a picture of salvation. Water is a picture of healing. Water is a picture of reconciliation with God. In John chapter 4, Jesus is sitting with the woman at the well. And he promises her that anyone who comes to him would receive life-giving water. That spiritual life that can come only through him. John chapter 7, Jesus goes on to say that any who drinks of the living water will themselves become sources of of living water for their families, for their jobs, for their communities, for the world around them. The river of living water, much like the tree of life, which we will look at in a few moments, is symbolic of the life that comes to us from Jesus as a gift of God. Since it finds its source for Ezekiel, it found its source in the temple, which was the earthly representation of the throne of God in the new heavens and new earth, We will see God face to face, so we will see the source of that river is coming directly from his throne. It reminds us that whatever blessing comes to you and I, because of our being united to Christ through faith and grace, comes directly to us as a gift, a loving gift from God on his throne. What benefits of salvation bring you hope even in the midst of your struggle with sin? Is it salvation itself, that that moment where you were regenerated and given faith so that you might have life in Christ? Is it your assurance? Is it your hope of glorification? All of those things come to you direct from the throne of God as a gift. The next connection to the Garden of Eden is the tree of life. Now we see this tree of life in the new heavens and the new earth producing fruit every day All year long. And this is another example of John using um, earthly language to describe the reality that there will be eternal life from the leaves, from the fruit of this tree. There will be no more. We, We will not need the sun or the moon anymore to let us know that there are day and night. We will no longer count days. We will no longer worry about being on time or missing an appointment on our calendar. Because we will stand there in the presence of the Son who gives us light, and we will be focused on his worship. But the tree of life connects us to Eden. Now remember, after Adam and Eve fell, God put the cherubim outside the Garden of Eden with the flaming sword to keep them from accessing the tree of life and then having eternal sinful life. Think of death as a grace, but death is actually, or as a curse, but death is also a grace. Could you imagine maturing in your sin for all of eternity? How depraved would humanity be if nobody ever died and we just got deeper and deeper into our sin? But the tree of life, it is told in the the new heavens and the new earth, will produce 
leaves and fruit all year long, and they will produce those leaves and that fruit so that the nations can be healed. What does he mean the nations can be healed? Because we've already been told in in Revelation 21, 1 through 8, that there will be no more death, there will be no more dying, there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, and God will wipe the tears from our eyes. I think there's two aspects to this, the healing of the nations. The first is given to us right there in the passage. The very next phrase says, no longer will there be any curse. When God pronounced the curse on Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, after they had sinned, one aspect of the curse that was given was the sin-strained relationships that they would experience. Adam's relationship with the earth would be strained by sin. He would fight the earth for food. The earth would still produce food, but he would have to fight weeds. He would have to fight pestilence. He would have to fight weariness and sweat and heat to get that food. As God gave the curse to Eve, he said that there would be a sin-strained relationship between she and Adam because of a battle over authority. There would be strife and a power struggle between Adam and Eve. We see this grow as Cain murders Abel and Cain's descendants build an empire on the strife that came because of human sin and human brokenness. We still see this strife and this struggle for power today in our world. Whether it's the inability of people of differing political stripes to be able to get along, whether it's countries and and people groups pursuing genocide against others, or even if it's only land grabs pursued through war and through aggression. People and nations and ethnicities today are constantly at war with each other. That needs to be healed. We are told that that peace comes to humanity through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peace on earth and goodwill to those on whom God's favor rests was proclaimed by the angels at the birth of Jesus Our conflict, our strife, our anger with each other needs to be healed. And we are reminded of of a truth that we've seen already throughout the book of Revelations that it doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter your national origin. Ukrainians and Russians, Chinese and Japanese. Think of the battles that have gone on for centuries, for millennia in our world between nations and peoples those conflicts will be healed and we will all be together serving God in the new heavens and new earth. The nations also need healing because sin has brought death and separation from from God. Excuse me. Before we can reconcile with each other, we truly need to be reconciled with God. Our conflict as humans comes because of a conflict with God as we pursue our wisdom, as we pursue our will, as you and I pursue our wants and desires rather than allowing the Holy Spirit to change our heart so that we desire what God desires, so that we pursue his glory. And because we pursue what we call idolatry, which is pursuing what you and I want rather than what God wills, we are at constant war and hatred against God. 
And Jesus has provided the redemption necessary to heal that rift between man and between God. So we've seen the connection to Eden in the river of life. We've seen the connection in the tree of life. We also see it in the service of the saints. Notice in our passage today, it says in in verse 3, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Now we have servant and servant, servant and serve in that verse in English are both from the same root word. But in the original language, those are two different words. And the word for serve him is, is actually a word that we use oftentimes in the church. It's the word that we get liturgy from. What is liturgy? Well, liturgy is that order of service that we have. It starts with a call to worship and ends with a benediction and has the scripture readings and the singing and the worship through tithes and offerings and the proclamation of what we believe wrapped up in it. And that points us to the truth that we will do a priestly service to God in the new heavens, in the new earth. Well, how does that link us back to Eden? Well, in Revel- or excuse me, Genesis 2, 15, Adam and Eve are told as they are placed in the garden that they are to work the garden and keep the garden. And later on, as the priesthood is developed by God and established more firmly by David during his reign, both God and David tell the priests that you are to work the temple and keep the temple. Adam and Eve served as God's priests in the Garden of Eden. And in the introduction to the book of Revelation, in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1, we are told that Jesus has made you and I into a kingdom of priests. And so like Adam and Eve, like the priests of the tabernacle and the temple, we will serve God as priests for all eternity. Now we don't know what this service looks like. John just tells us that we will serve, that we will honor and glorify him in some way, but we do know that our eternity will be marked by eternal activity, not that passive inactivity of floating around disembodied on a heart on a cloud playing a harp for all of eternity, as is often conceived of in modern Christian literature. We will work, we will act as priests in the new heaven and the new earth. And the fourth connection to Eden is found in the truth that God's throne in the middle of the city. Think about the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. How is it described that Adam and Eve and God interacted in that garden? They walked together and they conversed both morning and evening. God's throne will be with his people And that fellowship that Adam and Eve had that was broken by sin and with that sin brought into human experience shame and fear, that shame and fear will be gone. Adam and Eve covered themselves with leaves in the hope that the exposure of their sin could be hidden, that the shame that they felt because of their sin could be hidden from God's sight because they knew that they should not feel ashamed. They should not be fearful of God. God's holy presence today not only brings fear and shame, but would also bring death. In Exodus 33, Moses asks to see God face to face. God, show me your face. And God says, you don't want that. You cannot handle that. I'll allow the reflection of the backside of my glory to 
for you to see that as it reflects off the rocks. But if you see me face to face, you will surely die. As the curse is removed from creation, as the waters of life bring spiritual healing, the tree of life bring healing from conflict and bring redemption, the shame of sin and the fear of destruction in the face of God is removed from God's people. And we find ourselves able to stand in God's presence and feel his love and delight rather than fear and shame. And these are promises that brothers and sisters belong to you and to me today. We come before God in prayer without fear, without shame, because Jesus has cleansed us of that shame. He has taken that shame and has nailed it to the cross and has removed the shame of our rebellion, has removed the shame of your sin and the shame of the sins committed against you. He has removed those from you so that you might feel God's love, so that you might feel his delight. Guilt that leads to repentance comes from God, but that guilt should be alleviated as soon as we repent and submit to his loving discipline. The fear we feel in the face of a holy and righteous God has been removed at the cross and replaced with the knowledge that God delights in his children. Because of this, we can pursue holiness and strength rather than in fear because we are reconciled to God through Jesus. So this is a garden city that reminds us to look back to the Garden of Eden, but it's also in an illuminated, a lit city. The Lamb is the source of the light in this city. The light emanates from God's throne that has come down from heaven, and it gives us benefits. And once again, it gives us four benefits. First, the light is the source of joy. As we grow closer to God, as we have the light of the Spirit reflected off of the Scriptures and into our hearts to show us, number one, the depth of our sin and depravity, but also the even deeper depth of God's love for us in giving us salvation through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, one of the things that should bubble up in our life is joy. As we understand the the, the greater our greater need and the greater provision of salvation that we have through Jesus, through the cross, we should be people of joy regardless of what happens to us. The good times we should be joyful. The dark times we should be joyful. Yes, we weep, but we do not weep without joy. We have joy because the light of Christ shines upon us. And related to that joy is that light is the source of knowledge for us. Spurgeon said about a lady who had passed away in his congregation that she knew more about Jesus and the salvation that he gave within her first five minutes in heaven than the smartest of theologians could learn after a lifetime of study. It reminds us that since light gives us knowledge that God cares as much about how we think as he does about our heart. And that he sends us the Holy Spirit to shine light on our thoughts so that our actions can change, so that our, our, our desires can change, so that our thoughts, our desires, and our actions can change over time. But they will not be perfectly changed until we get to heaven and we see the fullness of that light and it peels away the dark mirror so that we see Jesus face to face. 
So the light in heaven will be a source of joy. The light in heaven will be a source of knowledge. It will also be a source of beauty. Think back to the description in chapter 21 of the, the jewels that make up the foundation stones of this holy city, of the jewels that make up the walls, the pearls that make up the gates, the, the gold that is on the streets and is so pure that it seems to be clear as crystal. What do all of those things need for them to show their beauty? They need light to either refract through it or to reflect off of it. And as as we see the colors from those gems, as we are dazzled by the light that reflects off the gold and the pearls, we see the absolute glorious beauty of the new heavens and the new earth. Even today, we have to have light to see the beauty of the flower, the beauty of a sunset, the beauty of the sky. Without light, there is no beauty. And yet we will also begin to fully understand the beauty of the cross as well. That symbol of suffering and shame, as the hymn writer says, we will begin to more fully see that it is a beautiful symbol as well. Because from it flows grace. From it flows forgiveness. And lastly, we see that the light is the radiance of God's love. You ever come through February, you get kind of into the middle of March and that sky out there has been steel gray for eight to 12 weeks. And then suddenly you feel the warmth of a sunny day. That's the warmth of God's love that will seep into us as we leave the grayness, the darkness of this world. And that light shines full force upon us. That light of God's love as it radiates from his throne to the boundaries of the city throughout every corner of the universe. We will feel God's love in the radiance of that light. One commentator, Simon Kistemacher, quotes a poem. We don't know the author of the poem. But the poem goes like this. It says, the light of heaven is the face of Jesus. The joy of heaven is the presence of Jesus. The melody of heaven is the name of Jesus. The employment of heaven is the service of Jesus. The harmony of heaven is the praise of Jesus. And the theme of heaven is the work of Jesus. So we've seen that this is a garden city. And we've also seen that this is an illuminated city. Now the temptation when we think of the connection between the new heavens and the new earth and Eden is to think that we are moving backwards to Eden. That we are going to go back to the way Adam and Eve had it. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, we don't want it the way Adam and Eve had it. What's not in the new heavens and the new earth that was in the Garden of Eden? The tree of the knowledge, the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil which means that there was temptation in Eden. There is no temptation in the new heavens and the new earth. There is no temptation in this garden temple city in which we will reside for all of eternity. Those who have bought in and yielded to temptation without repentance will spend eternity in the darkness 
in the place where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth, that second death that is described as the lake of fire, the lake of burning sulfur. That includes the serpent who in Revelation has grown up to be a dragon. He no longer prowls seeking whom he will to devour. We will live a life in the full knowledge of what Jesus has done for us in forgiving us of our sins. Seeking, actually it will not be a full knowledge. Let me back up there for just a second. We will we will spend eternity digging into that knowledge and yet never plumb its depths. But we will know that we have been forgiven for sin. We will know what it is like to have been tempted and yet we will also feel the glory of knowing that we will never be tempted again. Brothers and sisters, what good news that is. To know that not only will we not sin, but we will not struggle with temptation. We will not wrestle many times losing that fight against temptation as we move into sin. How many times, brothers and sisters, if you and I said, okay, God, I repent, I hate this sin. And then a month, a week, a minute, a half a second later, we find ourselves waist deep in that sin going, ah, I hate this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to fight with this. Lord, just take it away. Brothers and sisters, we will live in eternity where those temptations have been taken. We won't stumble into sin. It won't be there enticing us. We will live in a new heavens and new earth in the full glory, joy, love, knowledge, and beauty of God without fear of ever having to lose it again. We will no longer be on probation because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has fulfilled God's call to righteousness and holiness on our behalf. And so don't make the mistake of thinking we're moving backward to Eden. We're moving forward to a glorious future where sin has no power anymore. And that future is yours today. It means that in that fight against sin, you can hate it. You can find victory over it because that victory is yours today in Christ. And so as we consider these promises today, as we consider the beauty of the new heavens, the new earth, which is that city slash temple slash garden of God where he will dwell for all of eternity with his people, be strengthened in your walk today. That is who you are. That is your future in Christ. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for just the joy of knowing what awaits us. Lord, as we wrestle with sin, we ask that you would take it from us and we ask that you would also remind us of the fact that it no longer has power over us. Give us strength as we fight its influence, but remind us that its dominion has been broken at the cross. Lord, help us to bring glimpses of your new heaven and new earth to our lives today, whether it's through tending your creation or sharing the good news that salvation is available for rebels and sinners. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Remember, we have refreshments and a time of fellowship down in the fellowship hall immediately following the service. And elders and deacons, if you could meet Michelle, and I'll show up in a minute down at my study following the service as well, that'd be great. As you go this week, take this blessing upon you. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. 
The Lord be with you all. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.